earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me today. You may be in your car. You may be at home, sitting by your radio or listening on your mobile device. Or perhaps you're catching the podcast. Today I begin a series called A Look at Our Prayer Life Through the Lens of the Psalms. If you've thought of the Psalms as old and crusty words from the Old Testament, think again. Later I'll quote some of the best and brightest Christian minds on what their feelings are of the Psalms. Personally, they've been a lifeline to the Lord. So often the psalmist says what I'm thinking. Our first part is reclaiming spiritual stillness. And friends, in these challenging times, perhaps this is a quest we need to go on. So I'd like to begin by drawing your attention to the well-known story Moby Dick. There's a turbulent scene where a whaleboat glides swiftly across the frothing ocean in pursuit of the great white whale, Moby Dick. The sailors are laboring fiercely, every muscle taut, all attention and energy concentrated on the task at hand. The cosmic conflict between good and evil is intertwined, chaotic sea and demonic sea monster versus the morally outraged Captain Ahab. But in this boat, one man is doing nothing, not holding an oar, not even perspiring, not even shouting. In fact, he seems lifeless, indifferent to the crashing waves and the cursing sailors. This man is the harpooner, quiet, poised, waiting. The late Eugene Peterson, in his book, The Contemplative Pastor, compares this scene in Moby Dick to the Christian life. He says, to ensure the greatest efficiency of the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness, in other words, stillness, and not out of toil. I think Peterson meant that it's much better to focus on the target from a position of stillness or solitude than from a position of franticness or hecticness. Peterson then says the challenge of biblical commands involves us in the tumultuous sea that is the world, the white whale symbolizing evil and the crippled Captain Ahab personifying violated righteousness are fused in battle. Peterson views history as a novel of spiritual conflict. In this world, noise is inevitable and great energy is expended. But if there's no harpooner, there'll be no proper finish to the chase. Or if the harpooner is exhausted from abandoning his first assignment and jumping in as an oarsman, he'll not be ready and accurate when it's time to throw his javelin. You see, friends, the temptation for us is always to assume the work of the oarsman, laboring mightily in a moral cause, or throwing our energy into a fray that we think has eternal significance. 
humans tend to gravitate toward the dramatic, taking on the outrage of a Captain Ahab, who's obsessed with vengeance and retaliation, brooding over the injury done by the quote-unquote enemy. Sadly, some Christians even act like this. However, friends, there's other important work to do. Someone must throw the javelin. Some must be harpooners. It's really interesting that the metaphors Jesus used to describe the life of ministry are often images of the single, small, quiet, things whose effects far exceed their appearance, salt, leaven, seed. By contrast, friends, our culture is continually screaming out the exact opposite, the big, the multitudinous, the noisy, the loud. Peterson gives us some added insight. It is a strategic necessity that pastors deliberately ally themselves with the quiet, poised harpooners and not leap frenzied to the oars. There is far more need that pastors develop the skills of the harpooner than the muscles of the oarsman. It is far more biblical to learn quietness and attentiveness before God than to be overtaken by the twin perils of flurry and worry. Flurry dissipates energy and worry constipates it. Now, friends, please don't just sit back, relax, and wipe your brow with a sigh of relief, thinking, phew, he's talking to pastors. Because even though Peterson writes to pastors, every Christ follower should ally themselves with the quiet, poised harpooner and not leap frenzied to the oars. All of us Christ followers should cultivate the skill of the harpooner and not just amass the muscles of the oarsman. Every one of us Christ followers must come to the personal realization that it is far more biblical to learn quietness and attentiveness before God than be overtaken by the twin perils of flurry and worry. Earlier I spoke of the challenge of biblical commands, and I intentionally reserved mentioning one until now. Our first one is Psalm 46.10, a very well-known half-sentence but very much misunderstood and often misapplied. So I'm going to take a little time and describe the backstory of the Psalms in general and their historical worship and prayer significance for the people of Israel. Otherwise, I'd be doing us a disservice and an injustice to God's word if we just turned to that verse and extracted it from its crucial context. I said I'd give you the thoughts of some of the best and brightest Christian minds on their feelings of the Psalms, people who've been touched by this collection of prayers set to music. Well, here we go, friends. Soak this in. Martin Luther, the kingpin of the Protestant Reformation, stated that the Psalter is the book of all saints, in other words, all Christians. Well-loved radio preacher, the late J. Vernon McGee, remarked, The Psalms record deep devotion, intense feeling, exalted emotion, and dark dejection. They play upon the keyboard of the human soul with all the stops pulled out. It is the only book which contains every experience of a human being. Scholar J. David Plines in his book, The Psalms, Songs of Tragedy, Hope, and Justice, writes, We see in the overall development of the Psalter a checkered history that incorporates prayer, hymnody, and meditative reflection. D. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer titled his book on the Psalms, The Prayer Book of the Bible, likely drawing from Psalm 7220, which says, The prayers of David the son of Jesse are ended. Max Lucado, in his inspirational study Bible, has an illuminating introduction to the book of Psalms. I really love this. The Psalms could be titled God's Book of Common Prayer. Some are defiant, others are reverent. Some are to be sung, others are to be prayed. Some are intensely personal, others are written as if the whole world would use them. But all have one purpose, to give us the words to say when we come before God. He later adds, the language of worship is not polished, perfect or advanced, it's just honest. When the late Eugene Peterson translated the Psalms in contemporary English as part of the Message Bible, he echoed similar sentiments. Prayer is elemental, not advanced language. It is the means by which our language becomes honest, true, and personal in response to God. The Psalms in Hebrew are earthy and rough. They are not genteel. They are not the prayers of nice people couched in cultured language. And friends, lest we have any doubts that the Psalms are still fresh as ever, or doubt that they are applicable to our lives in the here and now, here's another great quote from Max Lucado. Don't just read the prayers of these saints, pray them, experience their energy, imitate their honesty, enjoy their creativity. Let these souls lead you in worship. Friends, I can honestly say that the Psalms have led me in worship and to worship. The Psalms have also empowered me to lead others in worship and to worship. And during my personal 25 plus year journey into studying the Psalms, I happened upon the words of scholar Elmer A. Leslie, whose sentiments have literally become my own. He said, I have really lived with these outpourings of the heart of Israel. My hope, friends, is to motivate us all to begin living with these outpourings of the heart of Israel. I'm guessing you think I forgot Psalm 46, didn't you? Well, I didn't. Psalm 46 is classified as a psalm of trust and thanksgiving. The focus is on the God of Israel being Israel's refuge, the city of God being Israel's security, and the deliverance of God being Israel's peace. And it was the German translation of verse 1 that supplied the inspiration for Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Let's listen carefully to this psalm and the opening verses that lead up to verse 10. That half sentence we often quote without realizing what comes before or after it. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High." God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. 
the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of heaven's armies, is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Then in verse 9, the verse right before verse 10, we read, He makes wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spears in half. He burns the chariot in the fire. Interestingly, Psalms 46 through 48 are sometimes referred to as a trilogy of praise. Some scholars believe the historical setting for these three psalms is the account of King Sennacherib of Assyria invading Israel in 701 BC during Hezekiah's reign, recorded in 2 Kings 18 and 19. Notice, friends, the context of Psalm 46.10 is a military context. Imagine that. So verse 10's first half begins with these simple yet profound words, Be still and know that I am God. Just three words in Hebrew, Rapha yada Elohim. But the word Rapha is so rich and expressive that no single English equivalent adequately embodies in one phrase the depth of understanding behind this single Hebrew word. But let's try and crack the code, okay? Rapha not only means be still, but it carries with it these extraordinary additional ideas. Cease, forsake, let go, drop it, relax, sink down, become helpless, lay limp. The New American Standard Bible, considered the most literal English translation, has cease striving in the text, but adds a marginal note saying, or let go, relax. The Good News translation says, stop fighting. Remember, the context of verses 8, 9, and 11 remind us that the military language is employed by the psalmist. So I propose that with every natural immediate setting, there is also a grander spiritual truth to be deduced and learned. Well, verse 10 says in its entirety, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. And we in the English-speaking world have the unfortunate reality that our word no can mean no intellectually, give mental assent to, possess information, if you will, and why it's, hel- and why it's helpful at times to gain a grasp of the meanings behind biblical words, particularly in relation to major themes and concepts. Knowledge is certainly one of those. The biblical Hebrew understanding of acquiring knowledge more often than not carries with it the idea that knowledge is gained by experience. In other words, experiential knowledge, intimate knowledge. As a matter of fact, friends, this is the same word used in Genesis 4.1 to describe Adam and Eve having relations. The King James translators understood this when they translated Genesis 4.1 as And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. And friends, I'm going to provide this free for you today. This is why premarital sex violates God's design for relationships. The world would have us think that we're only in danger of contracting diseases. So the world's message is, protect yourself. But the Bible's message takes the form of a warning because we acquire a depth of experiential knowledge that is not meant for us yet. It was designed to be experienced in a marriage bond. 
Yet the world freely and flippantly accuses the Judeo-Christian God of being a cosmic killjoy. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 reminds us that the sexual union makes us become one at a level intended only for married people. Well, back to Psalm 46.10, and the first half we know so well, or think we do, be still and know that I am God. This short but power-packed phrase is called God's Stabilizing Command by Reverend Walter Knight in his book of Biblical Illustrations. You see, friends, this psalm, though written at a point in Israel's history, speaks to us in the here and now, our time in history. The experiences need not match up exactly, but what we learn about God is the key. You see, the timeless truth for us is that although the world is in turmoil, in our God there is quiet and safety. No storm of life can assail us, and no disaster in nature can overwhelm us, because we have refuge in God. His rivers are streams of tranquility, and he can bring us peace and victory. So please let's not put this half verse on a plaque, on a doily, or frame it on a wall? It's not a quiet time devotional verse, and we shouldn't grab it when we're ready to have our prayer time or our quiet time with God. As a stabilizing command, its intent is to counteract the tumult that is going on around us, either worldly tumult, relational tumult, economic tumult, etc., when life's waves or the waves of the world come crashing down on us, that's when we need to fight the temptation of grabbing the oars and cease striving, drop the human contriving or manipulating, and lay limp in our Heavenly Father's arms. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, and Philippians 4, 6 and 7 are verses that help support Psalm 46. Isaiah says, You will keep him in perfect peace, those whose mind are steadfast, because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. Philippians says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And you know what? Guard is a military term. So the great scriptural advice here is this. The less time we set aside to cease striving and experientially know that God is God, the smaller and weaker he grows in our view. Notice, friends, I did not say the smaller and weaker God grows. And conversely, the more we cultivate our relationship with God through prayer and feeding on his word, the larger and stronger God becomes in our view, our perception. And as we all know, perception is reality, right? You see, friends, by ceasing our human strivings, remaining still, remaining poised and waiting, we can then aim at the targets in our lives from the position of stillness rather than from franticness and hecticness. 
And here's an element that often gets lost in this transaction and bypasses our thinking process. Lifestyle evangelism. Believe it or not, friends, the absolutely most effective form of evangelism is our responses to life circumstances and the people around us who are watching us. You see, our responses to life circumstances send a message to those who are watching us. Our reactions tell people whether we know he is God or not. We give God his reputation. You see, friends, when God's reputation increases in our eyes, the unconverted, the pre-Christians, so to speak, will be led to recognize him and exalt him as well. The premier example, of course, of the right responses to life is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll be closing out part one by taking a second look at Jesus. Jesus exemplifies what I call spiritual stillness and why part one is called reclaiming spiritual stillness. There is a side of Jesus that we don't often give a lot of attention to, but I believe that it was this aspect of his life that enabled him to endure what he endured and to glorify his Father in the process. And maybe, friends, you'll find that as curious as I did, I noticed that three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and John, each point something out about Jesus. In Matthew 14, 22, and 23, we see, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. You remember this story, don't you? This is the account of the disciples' boat being tossed to and fro by great waves from the wind. This is where Jesus ends up walking out on the water. Notice how Jesus was cool as a cucumber, calm, poised, and controlled. There wasn't a frantic or hectic bone in his body. Now let's see what Mark 6:45 through 51 has for us. This is the same scene, but Mark gives some details in a slightly different way. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him into Bethsaida while he was dismissing the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Then shortly after that, we read, Immediately he spoke to the disciples and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. Well, let's see what principle John adds to the mix. In John 6.15, at the tail end of Jesus feeding the 5,000, John first summarizes some details. After the people, the multitude that was fed, saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So, friends, I propose to you that from Matthew we learn that there are times we must dismiss the multitudes, send them away. From Mark we learn that there are times we must bid others farewell. And from John we learn that there are times we must withdraw. Friends, reclaiming or even claiming spiritual stillness, in other words, claiming a time slot to spend with the Lord in prayer and feeding on his word, 
is a deliberate action on our part. Let's not let the tumults of life and the crashing waves of the world crowd these important times out of our lives, whether daily or weekly. We should want these moments with the Lord to be our preemptive strike, shouldn't we? Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the top, at the end of today's program. I hope it's blessed you, edified you, and challenged you, and given you a new perspective on the Psalms. And please know that it's my honor to be praying for you as we all work toward reclaiming spiritual stillness in our frantic and hectic lives, especially during these challenging times. Let's make a concerted effort to give God the first fruits of our time and not just the leftovers. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. Additionally, if you're considering joining a Word from the Word support team, also write me. A special thanks to you whose support is helping keep this program on the air. One listener recently wrote me regarding the last teaching series, Great message as always. Stay safe and may God bless you and your work. Friends, hearing from listeners like you is always encouraging. Also, remember that these podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com, faithtalk1360.com. Just search for the menu for local podcasts. Forward these links to people you believe will be blessed or grow from these teachings. Thanks for listening today, friends. And whenever you feel as if nobody loves you, just remember, Jesus does. Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com that's a word from the word at minister.com